Will you please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 42, Psalm number 42. And as we look at Psalm 42 and 43, we want everybody to be able to look with us. So these brothers have some Bibles in their hands. They're going to make their way to the back. And as they do, if you need a Bible, get their attention. And those Bibles are marked for you at Psalm 42. And in addition to opening the Word of God to Psalm 42, I invite you to take the outline out of your program that you should have received on the way in. We'll be making reference to that in just a bit and use it throughout the message. Now, every week at this point in our worship service, we ask you to open the Bible because we're going to seek to understand and apply a portion of it. But in order for that to happen, there are always a number of hurdles that we have to overcome. The Bible is very old and very large. It's an ancient book, and it has 66 books, individual books within it. And those contain lots of names and events, and it can all be kind of hard to keep straight. Part of my job is to help you bridge the gap between then and there and here and now. So understanding the Bible will always have some obstacles for us to overcome, but it's made all the more difficult for this reason. Because we live in a culture that is largely characterized by a materialistic mindset. Now, when we think of a materialist or one who's materialistic, we think of someone who's only focused on amassing wealth, and that's true. But we call such a person a materialist because a materialist is one who's focused on matter first. For the materialist, matter, that is physical stuff, is what really matters. But the Bible deals at length with spiritual issues. In fact, the spiritual issues are most important in the Bible, and the Bible addresses our problems from a spiritual more than a physical material perspective. Now, I say that we live in a culture that is characterized by that kind of materialistic mindset, and I'm afraid to say that many of us, perhaps even unconsciously, have bought into that. Now, why do I say so? Because we become increasingly convinced that our problems can be addressed physically, materially, even medically. More and more human problems now come with a medical name, a physical solution, often in the form of medication. The Bible of psychiatry is called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. And you'll see it in print, and you'll sometimes hear it called DSM. It's had five versions. The most recent came out last year. The one before that was issued in 1994. Each version adds new labels to symptoms that people experience. For example, DSM-5, the latest one, has added something called intermittent explosive disorder. Now, you're chuckling because you can probably guess what that might, might involve. Intermittent explosive disorder. Uh, dis disorder. And this is what it says about it. <clears throat> the impulsive aggressive outbursts in intermittent explosive disorder have a rapid onset. Outbursts typically last le for less than 30 minutes and commonly occur in response to minor provocation by a close intimate or associate. 
Individuals with intermittent explosive disorder often have less severe episodes of verbal and or non-damaging, non-destructive, or non-injurious physical assault. Regardless of the nature of the impulsive aggressive outburst, the core feature of intermittent explosive disorder is failure to control impulsive aggressive behavior in response to subjectively experienced provocation. Now, here you see, you begin to see where the difficulty comes in. Because as we are diagnosed that way, and then we compare what the Bible says about similar behavior, just ask yourself, how would the Bible describe that? The Bible would describe it as an angry man or angry woman. And anger in the Bible, according to the Bible, has a spiritual root. And yet, can you not see how if someone is, quote, diagnosed, and notice the medical terminology, diagnosed with a problem like intermittent explosive disorder, then they don't view their problem as spiritual, but rather physical material. DSM-5 says this, that one in seven people has a lifelong personality disorder. That's 45 million Americans. One in seven. So just take a look. Just look down the aisle. (laughs) You guys can decide who's got the problem, okay? Theodore Dalrymple, a psychiatrist but a critic of DSM, says this. He says, these astonishing numbers, the 45 million and the one in seven, they give the authors not a moment's pause, any more than does the fact that their own prevalence rates suggest that the average American suffers more than two psychiatric disorders in any one year. The average American, two in any one year. Several undesirable characteristics must be present in an individual for a diagnosis of personality disorder to apply. Considering those characteristics and that such a significant portion of the Western population supposedly exhibits many of them, either a mass outbreak of human nastiness has occurred and an inability to deal with everyday life or the whole business of diagnosis must be dubious and even, he says, ridiculous. And there's always, even with all these diagnoses, there is always a pill for the ailment. Columnist for the Detroit Free Press, Mitch Album, wrote this a couple of years ago. Here's the mentality of our country now. If you have a problem, open a vial. Cholesterol rising, a pill for that. Can't sleep, a pill for that. Feeling blue, a pill for that. Never mind that these issues were once dealt with by diet, exercise, or facing our problems. Today it's easier and better for the drug industry, he says, if you just ingest something. One expert in his column said, the HMO system has crushed us. Doctors today don't have time to figure out what's wrong. They just write a prescription. You can see then the challenge from a biblical perspective. Now, why am I saying all of this? Because our passage today deals with a kind of depression, and it provides God's remedy for it. And I'm hoping that you'll pay attention and be helped by it. But friends, to the extent that we adopt the medical model of human behavior, to to that extent, it's harder for us to hear God's diagnosis of our hearts. Back when we were only at the DSM-2 level, that came out in 1968, This trend had already been identified by many, so much so that psychiatrist Carl Menninger wrote a book in 1973, the title of which asked, 
whatever became of sin. Now, with all that I've said, you may think I don't believe there are physical causes or effects for depression and the like, but actually that's, that's not the case. Our physical brains are affected by the way we think. Now, notice the way I said that. Our physical brains are affected by the way we think. You may be thinking as a materialist, well, our brains are what allow us to think. But our brains are not the sum total of our thinking. We think spiritually, and it affects us physically. And if we think in wrong patterns, it can and does hardwire us to think in those patterns, and this hardwiring is, by definition, physical. Or we may have acquired a physical problem of thinking genetically in a fallen world. Or we may have been born with hardwiring that affects our thinking in adverse ways. These show up in scans of brain activity, and medication can and does help those. So hear this carefully. If you have medication for depression or other struggles, please keep taking it, and please keep seeing your doctor. But just think of it as other kinds of things that we might do in our own behavior that then in turn cause physical problems for us or perhaps we're genetically disposed toward. And if we need medication for those, then we take it, don't we? And I encourage you not to spend a whole lot of time thinking about how it is you got there and why it is you have to take this stuff. And especially if you're someone who has a tendency toward depression, it will simply make you more depressed. The truth is this, that in a fallen world, we suffer the effects of the fall, and sickness of all types is part of that. But what I want us to recognize, more important, what God wants us to recognize, is that our thinking has two components, not just one. Our thinking, our thoughts, are both spiritual and physical. And we must always be seeking to train our minds upward. And that's what Psalms 42 and 43 do for us. Three times in these two psalms, the psalmist speaks of his battle with spiritual depression. Verse 5 of Psalm 42. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? And then at the end of that psalm, verse 11, again, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? And then in Psalm 43, the last verse, verse 5, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Now, this, the mere fact that the Bible addresses this issue ought to be a comfort to us already. Because God in Holy Scripture recognizes our struggles. But He goes on to give us His prescription for that. So let's ask God to help us, and then we'll see what He says. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather as your people around your word and to see there your prescription for what ails us. Lord, the most important difficulties that we have are spiritual. Help us to recognize the truth of what your word teaches about the priority of the interior, the hard issues, the spiritual life, and be then ready to receive your counsel, your cure for what ails us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, I asked you to pull the outline that we had inserted in your program. You'll notice we have two major points there. And at the end of each of those two major points, it says spiritual depression. And so it's modified as spiritual depression for a reason. As I've already said, I'm not going to spend any more time on that, but there 
are and can be physical effects to depression as well. Those may indeed require medication. So here we're focusing on the spiritual dimensions of the way we think and when we are, and when we are down. And the reason that we're looking at both Psalm 42 and 43 is because these were originally one psalm, and they were divided later into to two. Now, how do, we, how do we know that? A few things. One, uh, a number of the Hebrew manuscripts have them as, as one psalm. But secondly, you'll notice at the top of Psalm 42, there's what's called a superscription, a, a title, but not at the top of, of 43. That's because 43 is a continuation of, of 42. And then thirdly, as we've already seen, they deal with the same subject matter. Why are you so downcast? Why are you so disturbed within me, O my soul? And so we're dealing with both of those, what it says about the the, the problem and also the solution. And so I say in your outline, in the ups and downs of life, we must first of all do this, identify the causes of spiritual depression. Identify the causes of spiritual depression. And there are several of these that are listed uh, in those two psalms. The first is this, one cause for spiritual depression that the psalmist himself was experiencing was separation from congregational worship. Separation from congregational worship. Where do we see that? The first two verses. Psalm 42 and verse 1, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? Now, why does he say that? Here's why. Because the one who wrote it is apparently far away from Jerusalem, the center of worship. We're not told in the Psalms why he's away, but verse 6 tells us that when he writes, he's located at, it says, the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Now, Mount Hermon is a great mountain in a range of mountains in the north of Israel. It's on the border of Syria, and it's where the headwaters for the Jordan River spring up, and that's why it then mentions the Jordan. Mount Mizar, the the word means this, little mountain, and it refers to a small hill in that larger range. The area in the New Testament that the psalmist is in is called Caesarea Philippi, and I only mention that because we're going to visit the Holy Land next Israel, if you're, next April, if you're able to go with us, and we will be at this very spot, Lord willing, uh, one year from, from now. So if you're interested in that, pick up a brochure at the Information Center, commercial over, back to the sermon. But what this means is that he's far away from the center of worship in Jerusalem, and he longs to be there. He knows that, indeed, God is everywhere, and God is with him in the north of Israel on the border of Syria. In fact, he prays to God in these psalms, even while he's away. He knows God is everywhere, but he wants to be where God is worshipped. Hear this, in the assembly of his people, not just alone. So the end of verse 4 speaks of his worship being rendered among the festive throng. One commentator says this, some have suggested that if a, a traveler or a captive, which the author of the psalm may be. If they were headed east in the direction of Babylon, this is the last point from which he might glimpse the familiar mountains of his homeland to the south, and Mount Zion. Now, friends, it's a deep spiritual desire that allows for this kind of 
effective feeling on the part of the psalmist. To say, Lord, I love you and I love your people and I love your worship so much that I long, I pant, I desire to be in the assembly of your people in Jerusalem. As water is the source of life and vitality for the animal, for the deer, God, he is saying, is the source of spiritual life. And he's near water, apparently, because verse 6 describes where he's located. And then verse 7 says it includes waterfalls. In another of the Psalms, the writer is in a desert which has no water, but he still says this in Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. So the desire in Scripture of God's people is to be with God's people in the worship of the God that they have in common. And when that cannot happen, there is a longing deep desire that's expressed in the heart and even through the mouth and the pen of God's people. But there's another dimension to this as well. The one who writes this is not only a long way and thus downcast, away from the assembly of God's people for worship, but he's also out of work and he feels useless. Now, why do I say that? Look at the top of Psalm 42, that superscription that I mentioned earlier. It says, for the director of music, a maskeel, that's probably a musical term, of the sons of Korah. Now, what is it about the sons of Korah? Who are those guys? Well, the Bible tells us about Korah, the father of these sons, and it tells us in the book of Numbers about a rebellion that Korah and some others led against Moses and Aaron. In fact, Numbers chapter 16 says, says this, Korah, along with 250 Israelite men, came as a group to oppose Moses. Fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men. Now, I thought about just putting a take-home truth right here and just ending. The take-home truth would be, don't mess with the pastor. Now, don't mess with the pastor, but still, we'll continue. Now, for some reason, the sons of Korah were spared, and perhaps in gratitude to God, they dedicated themselves to leading music in praise to God, both in the tabernacle, in the wilderness wandering, but then later in the temple that was, that was built. First Chronicles 6 tells us this, the descendants of Kohath, including his son Korah, the descendants of Elkanah, and the descendants of Merari. These are the men David put in charge of the music in the house of the Lord. They ministered with music before the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, until Solomon built the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. So the one who is writing this Psalm 42, a son of Korah, with the superscription, and then the history of the sons of Korah and their assignment to be involved in the musical worship of God in the tabernacle and the temple, he's now out of work. Because he's not in Jerusalem. So he is down because he is away from the worship of God and the assembly of God's people. He's also down because he has lost his job. And he feels he has lost his then vitality, his reason for living. 
Can you identify with that? You know, sometimes when people retire, it's an occasion to be downcast, to be depressed, because I'm no longer useful as I once was. Or if we lose our position, not through retirement, but simply by that horrible word, downsizing. And I put my whole life into this career and my training, and now what do I do? And so God identifies with with our suffering. The psalmist identifies with that. He's experiencing that. And some of you can identify with that, not only in the past, perhaps right now, you're going through something similar. And so there is this cause for depression, being downcast, being separated from the worship of God and His people, but also secondly in your outline. It comes from being taunted by the world. Taunted by the world. Verse 3 of Psalm 42 says, My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, Where is your God? Now in these times, in those days, there was no real philosophical atheism. There was polytheism. And everybody had a God for everything. And the worth of your God was determined by whether or not your God came through for you. What's your God done for you lately? And so in verse 3, when he is now taunted about the God of Israel, the question is, well, where is your God? You're out here for some reason that we don't know. You're away from the worship of your God. You've been put out of work as a result of being removed from Jerusalem. How is your God coming through for you? You believe in only one God who does all things, so where is He in your distress? Where is He in your longing to return? Where is He to save you? You know, as our culture grows increasingly secular, anti-God and anti-Christian, we will feel these taunts in many, many ways. I remember 30 years ago, a little over 30 years ago, being a college student, and hearing the taunts of my professors about what I believed, and the taunts even of some of my classmates from time to time, hearing God's name used in vain by professors who were paid to teach me at a public university, and His truth ridiculed. And there were times where I found myself very down as a result of being so outnumbered because of the taunting, the ridicule by the world. Another cause for depression, spiritual depression, is precious, I have in your outline, memories of the past. Precious memories of the past. Verse 4 says, I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the Mighty One, with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. And now because of the exile he's in, for whatever reason he's in it, he can't do what he used to do with the people with whom he used to do it. Wouldn't you agree, dear friends, that our greatest joys, when they're gone, can be our greatest sorrows then? Because we so long for them to be renewed and to be restored. And so we find ourselves thinking and asking, remember what it was like when we used to. You're going to have more and more people feeling the way the psalmist is. Some of you in this room are experiencing this right now. Because as evangelical Christianity continues to depart from teaching the Word of God and a a 
biblical philosophy of carrying out ministry. As that happens, there will be more and more exiles from the worship of God, seeking places to worship God among the throng. And they will, and some of you are, looking back, and you are saying and have been saying for months, remember what it was like when. But notice his greatest joy is in this congregational worship. He wants to be back with the festive throng with whom he used to worship. Let me tell you something, dear friend. You will not be able to address the personal issues that you have in your life if you are not someone who is fully engaged with the Lord in spiritual disciplines and with God's people in his church. I get people who regularly come to me and say, I want to meet with you, fix, help me fix my problems. But much of the problem stems from the fact that they have chosen to divorce themselves from the regular worship of God and with his people. I am happy to help you, to help anyone in any way that I can. But it is absolutely required, if you name the name of Jesus, that you begin to cultivate the joy of being with God's people. And this psalmist had done that, and through apparently no fault of his own, is taking away from that, and now remembering that joy is in fact one of his greatest sorrows. Fourthly, another reason for depression, spiritual depression, is the overwhelming circumstances of the present. Circumstances of the present, verse 7. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. The reasons that he's been taken away from Jerusalem must have included some kind of trial, such that he looks at the waterfalls and the currents of the water, things that might have, in other circumstances, caused him to praise God for the beauty, but instead he's filled with pain, as though the hits just keep on coming. It's true, isn't it, that one setback, one trial is hard to take. And sometimes they just come one after another in waves. And that's what the psalmist is experiencing. And he cries out to God then. Fifthly, a delay in help from God can be a catalyst for spiritual depression. Delay in help from God. I mean, with all of this, being exiled from home, taunts by unbelievers, memories of days that seem to be gone forever, problems, compounding problems, He now feels abandoned by God. Look at verse 9. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? God is not helping immediately. God is apparently not answering. God always answers, but not, as you know, in the way that we often want and not in the time that we want. And that's what's happening to the psalmist here. When my daughter Annie was little, I was supposed to clear this with her before I shared it, but when she was very little, I have to emphasize that, this didn't happen last year, very little, but we used to counsel Annie when she was running into trouble with anything, ask God to help you, and so Annie took that literally, ask God to help with anything, and uh, when she was trying to open a jar and she couldn't open, couldn't get it open, she'd ask God to help, and he doesn't help, I can't, still can't get it open. And then she would come to me and say, I can't open it. I ask God to help, and he doesn't help. And I would give the jar to Kim and ask her to open it then for, 
But it is true, isn't it? God always helps, but not in the way and not in the time that we define. And so that delay from our perspective is another occasion often for us for spiritual depression. And then attacks by unbelievers. Probably these are the same people who in verse 2 were taunting, where is your God? Psalm 43 and verse 1. Vindicate me, my God. Plead my cause against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me from those who are deceitful and wicked. And then I have in your outline just many other causes. I mean, really, almost an endless list could be constructed. These are those that the psalmist is experiencing. But then there are many, many others. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famous evangelical British preacher, great expositor of the Word of God. He wrote a book called Spiritual Depression, and it is a thick book, and he he was a medical doctor as well as a preacher, and he covered every aspect of spiritual depression. And in that book, he lists a number of things beyond what Psalm 42 and 43 lists. He listed things like temperament, that some people just by their personality are more susceptible to being down than, than others. Physical conditions. There are actually, and there is proof that I buy into anyway, that certain physical conditions that that we have can then uh, lead to uh, down conditions, even depression. He lists a letdown after a, a great blessing. The attacks of Satan to take our eyes off God. And then most importantly, he says, though, the chief reason for spiritual depression is simple unbelief. Failure to believe God. Take Him at His word. Believe that He will do in His time and in His way what He has promised to do. Whatever reasons you have for being down, friends, and there are many, hear this. You have much greater reason for joy and hope. The causes of spiritual depression are many, but what is the cure? And that's what I have secondly in your outline. We're to identify the causes of spiritual depression, but we then should also implement the cure for spiritual depression. And the world turns to false cures. Escapism of entertainment, frequent vacations, even divorce, some pop pills, some are habit-forming drugs, You all remember the hit show many years ago, Family Ties, Alex P. Keaton, Michael J. Fox, and his sister's ditzy sister was Mallory. And Mallory said, when I get depressed, I go shopping. That's the way she handles it. The world turns to false cures. These cures are ineffective. At best, hear this, they lift our spirits for a time. And so we try diversionary tactics, escapism of whatever type. My family and I last August were down in Orlando at, at Disney as we took Lainey down to uh, college in Clearwater. And one of the nights we were sitting, at the end of the night, we were sitting in a, a restaurant uh, at Disney, and there was a woman there who just completely lost it with the management of that restaurant. She threw her credit card at the manager, and now nobody could find her credit card. I guess she fixed them. And she was just hysterical. 
And we could hear her. She was talking loudly, and she was saying, everything has been wrong since minute one. It was supposed to be so perfect. Do you see what's happened, friends? She has put her hope in that vacation. This is going to fix our family. This is going to fix our, our ailments. The best those things can do is lift our spirits for a time. So what are we to do? First, and most important, preach to yourself. Preach to yourself. You see, in this psalm, the psalmist is talking to himself. And we all do. We all talk to ourselves, usually without moving our lips. The most powerful communication that you engage in is the communication you engage in with yourself. It is what you say to yourself about yourself and about others and about God in the recesses of your mind. And you and I are talking to ourselves all the time. And that talk can really get us down. And so here's the way that talk goes for us. We, in our minds, we want to be perfect. And then we realize we aren't perfect. And so we chastise ourselves for how stupid we are or how ugly we are or how foolish we are. Ron, it goes. I want to be perfect, but I'm not perfect. So when will I be happy? When I'm perfect. When will that happen? You got to die for that. <laughs> Meanwhile, you're going to be a fairly miserable guy or gal. But it's not just, I mean, it would be okay if it was just me and my own misery, but it's not just that. In the recesses of my mind, as I communicate with myself, it's not just about myself, it's about you too. <laughs> I mean, not only am I not perfect, you are really not perfect. And I want other people to be perfect. And when people are not perfect, I'm not happy. When will other people be perfect? Yeah, you guessed it. Meanwhile, I'm a pretty miserable soul. Friends, we have got to learn the discipline to go beyond listening to ourselves and move to talking to ourselves. To go beyond listening to our feelings and our emotions and preach God's truth to ourselves. And that's what the psalmist, as we're going to see, tells us to do. Now, I mentioned earlier that Martin Lloyd-Jones said that temperament, how, this and how deeply this affects us, can play a role. And indeed, that's, that's true. And personality and experience then enter into how we think about the imperfections that we have and those of others. And so we hide. We hide ourselves from, from others. And we hide in the recesses of our own thoughts. And so let me just give you a few ways that we do that. I have a book that I read years ago. Man, I'm going back 20, 25 years ago. It's out of print now. But it's on interpersonal communication from a biblical perspective, and it's called The Trauma of Transparency. That was an excellent 
from my standpoint, an excellent book. And it talks about how we communicate with each other verbally, out loud, but it begins with how we think and communicate to ourselves. And it gives a number of somewhat humorous, but I think accurate profiles of different kinds of people. One is Gloomy Glenda. Gloomy Glenda is a single young adult who just got through looking at her friend's new diamond and hearing all about the wedding plan. Glenda wants to marry, but right now she doesn't date very often. So in scene one, she's processing the data. In scene two, now she's looking in the mirror at the skin blemishes, hair, funny-shaped nose. She concludes she's not very attractive. She'll probably never marry. Feeding on such distraught data, fermentation process continues. And then it moves to a third scene. Sitting alone in her apartment, she's thinking, I'm doomed. Nobody really likes me. I'm a failure. I'll never be happy. She's not meditating with God. She's commiserating with herself. She's not gaining perspective. She's losing it. As someone has aptly said, when you have yourself for a doctor, you have a fool for a patient. He goes on to give several others. The way we hide in the recesses of our minds. Dear friends, what then is the antidote? What is the answer to that? We are to, to preach to ourselves, talk to yourself rather than listening to yourself. Your mind must speak to your emotions rather than your emotions speaking to your mind. And here's what you must do. You must remind yourself of the good news of the gospel. Remind yourself of what you were. Rehearse the position that you now have in Christ. Reimagine what it will be like to be with Christ and rid of all the effects of fallenness. And God has given us all of that in His Word for us to preach to ourselves. Stop listening to your emotions and preach the good news of the gospel to yourself. And then secondly, practice what you preach. Preach to yourself. And then practice what you preach because verse 40, Psalm 42 and verse 5 and then verse 11 and Psalm 43 and verse 5, each of those, as we already read, say the same thing. Why so disturbed? Why are you downcast, my soul? Why so disturbed within me? But then it goes on to say, I will put my hope in God. And so I preach to myself, why are you doing this? Why are you allowing your mind to spin out of control and think in ways that are not consistent with God's thoughts? Preach to yourself. Speak to yourself the good news and then practice what you preach. That is, put your hope in God. All of those things that have you down, every last one of them, is under the control of Almighty God. And every last one of them not only can be remedied by God, hear this, they will absolutely be remedied by God in His time and in His way. It may not be this life. It may be the next. But they will be remedied by God. And that's then how you come to the third aspect of the solution, the cure. You preach to yourself. You practice what you preach. You put your hope in God. And then you meditate on your preaching. Meditate, that is. Meditation is thinking over and over. That's what meditation is. It's mulling it over and over. And instead of mulling all the junk you mull, 
You mull over God's truth regularly. The psalmist goes on to say in those verses, Psalm 42 and verse 5 and verse 11 and Psalm 43 and verse 5, Why are you downcast, my soul? Why are you so disturbed within me? I'll put my hope in God. And then it goes on to say, notice, For I will yet praise Him. Do you see the confidence now that this one who is exiled for whatever reason from the worship of God in the throng of his people, he still expresses now this confidence, I will yet praise him. Meditate over and over on the fact that God will fulfill his promises to you. So does medicine such as the psalmist prescribes really help? Does it really affect a cure? Well, the progress in this, in this cure, this prescription, is evident throughout these two psalms. One commentator says this, Look how the thought flows and the mood rises throughout this two-part composition. In the first stanza, the psalmist remembers the former days at the temple. He's oppressed by that memory. In stanza two, he draws on the memory again, but this time to remember God and His goodness. In the first stanza, he's troubled by the taunts of enemies who say, where is your God? But in the second stanza, he answers that God is with him in verse 8 of Psalm 42. In verse 1, God is absent. In verse 9 of Psalm 42, God is his rock. By the time we come to Psalm 43 in verse 2, God is his stronghold. And he's praying confidently that God will guide him back to the place of worship and the joys of former days. The first two stanzas were laments. The third has become a strong, believing prayer. And then that same movement of thought carries out in the last stanza. For the motion he anticipates from God is marked out in four anticipatory stages. Stay with me for just a moment. First, it's backward in Psalm 43 to Mount Zion. And then the holy mountain of verse 3 from which he's been removed. And second, it's to the temple upon Mount Zion, the place where God dwells, verse 3. And third, it's to the altar of God before the temple in verse 4 of Psalm 43. And finally, it's to God Himself. Do you see that God has reversed all the way back now? In confidence, He has made His way all the way back to God, back to Mount Zion, then the temple, then the altar, and then God. You say, I'm not going to Mount Zion. I mean, maybe I'll go on the Holy Land tour with you. But that's not where we worship. That's where they worshiped then. I want to conclude by reminding you, dear friends, where the altar is that you need to make your way back to. The place of worship that we need to make our way back to. Is none other than the Lord Jesus Himself. Because the tabernacle of God has now become flesh and is embodied in the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why John chapter 1 and verse 14 says this. The Word became flesh. And notice it says, made His dwelling among us. Made His dwelling, get this, is literally pitched His tent among us. Tabernacled among us. Where do I need to return? I need to return to Jesus. 
Where do I need to look? I need to look to Jesus. On whom and on what do I need to meditate and mull over, over and over again? It is on Jesus and his person and work and the good news of the gospel that comes because of him, through him. That's why Colossians 2 says this, In Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. So what's our take-home truth then? We must regularly preach the gospel to ourselves. Regularly preach the gospel to ourselves. 